Good morning. Let's go before God in prayer one more time. Lord, I thank you for this great text that you have given me to work with today. I pray that you would do the teaching here, that your spirit would overcome me, that you would plow up consciences and minds and hearts, that you would go before me and help me to lead these people in delighting in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Give me just a second. Much better. In April of 1985, I preached my first sermon in a homiletics lab at RTS. And in all those years, I have never once, not a single time, used the visual aid. I break that. Burley? What that is? That is the Andromeda Galaxy. That's our sister galaxy. She's the closest of the major galaxies to the Milky Way where we live. You look at the breadth of that galaxy and it takes a beam of light going at 186,282.397 miles per second, 250,000 years to cross that. And for that same beam of light to turn left at Albuquerque and come here takes 10 times that long, 2.5 million years at light speed to get there. But that's too little, really. That's the local group. Local group. It's the group of galaxies that includes the Milky Way, Andromeda, and about 30 more. It's something on the order of 10 million to 15 million light years across. You'll see some galaxies in the picture. Those are actually enhanced. On this scale, that 250,000 light year across galaxy is too small to than a pixel. Hmm? Okay. Are we getting anywhere? Okay. This is a test. This is only a test. This is a test of the emergency broadcast system. Are we good? Okay. That's too low. Burley? What you see here is the Virgo supercluster. It's the supercluster of galaxies that contains our local group plus several billion more groups and clusters of galaxies. On this scale, the local group is too small to see. It's less than a pixel. That's too little. Burley? That is the Laniakea supercluster in which the Virgo supercluster is a tiny, tiny little Dot. It is visible on this scale, but just as a dot. Too little. Early. That is the observable universe. That beam of light we discussed earlier, 
would take 92 billion years, that's with a B, to get across that circle. Laniakea is just barely visible on this scale. Now I ask you, what conceivable work of man could ever magnify that? What could men build, what could we devise, what could we employ that could ever, in a million years, make that bigger? What's that? That's the Hubble Space Telescope. Now, what effect does the Hubble Space Telescope have on all those glorious visions we just looked at? Answer is absolutely none. It does nothing to make those things bigger. It does nothing to enhance them. Well, what does it do? What it does is it proclaims the grandeur of the universe that God has created. It magnifies the things that God has created by making them small enough for little bitty critters like us to see. Today, I want to encourage you to become little Hubbles as you magnify the Lord. Turn with me to Psalm 34. Psalm 34. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes it boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. And let us exalt His name forever. I'm sorry, that's a very special verse for me. I sought the Lord, and He answered me, and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to Him are radiant. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear Him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Oh, fear the Lord, you he saints. Those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger. But those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O oh children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and lives many days, loves many days, that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and His ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all of their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. But the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. The grass withers, the flower fades, 
but the word of our God abides forever. Before I get into the psalm, I need to tell you a little bit about how it's structured. This is one of the five, new word for you guys, abecedarii. What's an abecedarium? There are five psalms in in this altar who have a unique structure. Abecedarian, A-B-C-E-D-arian. They're written in alphabetical order. Each line of this psalm begins with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. There are five of those in the Psalter. The three that I can remember right now are 25, this one, and 119. I want you to go home, pick up a pen, and try to write a poem in which each line has the next letter of the English alphabet. Just go try that and see what that does to your structural abilities. The psalm doesn't follow an outline. So for preaching purposes, I've had to rearrange it just a little bit. Uh, I've divided it up into different themes, but I've, I've kept this idea of a Hubble Space Telescope. We're going to be looking through the eyepiece of the Hubble Space Telescope. This idea of an abecedarian alphabetical psalm has some effects. First of all, it makes the psalm easier to remember if you're fluent in Hebrew. This was designed to be memorized, so that's why David uses that kind of alphabetical structure. But he does something else. It takes us from A to Z. Now, when we use the phrase from A to Z, what do we mean by that? We mean everything by that. We mean that what we're saying here is encyclopedic in its coverage. Nothing is left out. The subtle structural hint is, I am subduing every aspect of life to this one purpose, the magnification of our God. That's your excuse for breathing. And no aspect of your life is exempt from this delightful duty to magnify the Lord with me to proclaim who He is in everything that we say and everything that we do. It dominates life. I think that's appropriate. After all, whose idea was life in the first place? Where does life come from? You are injected into a body not of your own design and not of your own choosing. Into a family not of your own design, not of your own choosing. Into a century, not of your own design, not of your own choosing. You will be ejected from that body at the convenience of another. And you're silly enough to call your life your life. What's your only comfort in life and death? You're not your own. Your life is about something other than you. And David's making this point. Everything about your life is for the magnification of your God. Where do we magnify God? Everywhere. In every aspect of life. Now David approaches this out of a position of having, well, he's had a bad day. This is, uh, this is a psalm, we're going to get back to some of the details. This is a psalm in which David is recovering from some fairly extreme persecution. And out of that, he's saying this. I will bless the Lord when? At all times. His praise shall how often? Continually be in my mouth. The first, the first clause has a verb in it. I will bless. The second clause talks about a state of being. 
I will continually be in this state of condi- or condition of praising God. There is something common to both of those clauses, and that commonality is continuity. It's to go on all the time. What an oppressive God. I mean, think about it. What an oppressive, tyrannical, dictatorial God to impose on us the uninterrupted duty of delighting. See what he's done? He has imposed upon us the uninterrupted duty of delighting. The organ of praise here is the mouth. It's the speech. What that represents in this context is the whole conduct of life. We get that, if you, when, you read this, when you read the King James Bible, you'll hear a word used in the 17th century that we don't use quite the same way anymore. The word conversation. Uh, for the 17th century, that doesn't mean what it means now. The 17th century used that word to mean the totality of life. Your character. Today, we don't use it that way. But there's some considerable overlap. You see, what you talk about, what you converse over, that kind of reveals an awful lot about what's important to you. What you dwell on. What's uppermost in your mind? What are you talking about in your head and outside most of the time? What's got your attention? Where are your thoughts? The King James used this word to represent man's moral and ethical conduct, conduct, used it to represent man's reputation, and we can still infer an awful lot about somebody's conduct, about somebody's character, from what topics of conversation he chooses to discuss when left to himself. Where does your mind go when nobody's got your, nobody else has your attention? What do you think about? You let me hear what you talk about for one day, and I will infallibly tell you what's important to you. For David, what was important to him was God. And he's calling us to that kind of a conversational commitment. A desire for God to take up all of our attention. A desire for God to be that which drives, defines, refines, creates that which is life. That's where he's going with this, oh, magnify with me. Verse 2 says, My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. We talked before about the fact that the magnification of, uh, magnification of God was by definition public. This is what's not happening in verse 2. David is not alone in his prayer closet. He's not feeling happy about what God has done for him and he's talking to himself. That's not what's going on here. He's in the stated public worship assemblies of the people of God. He's here. In a situation like this, where God's people have gathered together, God's people have not gathered together for an information dump. They have not gathered together for a data download. They have gathered together to lift their hearts in worship before the God who deserves that worship, who is entitled to that worship, and beyond that entitlement has earned that worship from us. We're not here primarily to learn. I'll never forget when I was uh, 
first got to Philadelphia for my brief time at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. It's my first Sunday uh, in, in town. And I, I went to this place, little place called Calvary Presbyterian Church, which is right across the street from the seminary. And I really should have, you know, I should have anticipated this. I just wasn't thinking. I'm walking down the aisle, and as I walk down the aisle, I see a gray head in front of me. I have maybe a second to think about who that might be, and then he turns, and I recognize the face. There's a little old man walking down the aisle, coming up to me to shake my hand and welcome me to that church. That little old man was a fellow by the name of Cornelius Van Til, who is the greatest apologist probably since the Reformation, one of the most gigantic minds in church history. And he was there to hear the preaching of his 26-year-old pastor. Now, I ask you, if he was there to get information, was that a wise investment of time? He was there to lift up his part, worship the Lord, and magnify his name in the context of the body. That's why he was there. And that's why we are here. The pro- proclamation is public, and he intends for the people around him, whom he calls the humble, and they're humble because they're there in a spirit of worship, he intends for them to hear. He intends for them to be encouraged. He's bragging. He's boasting, and he admits it. My boast, like a little boy adoring a mighty father, he's telling everybody, look at what my daddy can do. King of Israel, look at what my daddy can do. He's not bragging about self. He's bragging all about his great God. And he's leading his people in rejoicing over who this God is and what this God does. He expects, in effect, let the humble hear and be glad. His hearers have the same God. They've got the same promises. They've got the same deliverances. David rejoices in the goings of God, and he brings encouragement and comfort to the entire covenant community. He says to the people of God, what happens in my life is a promise from God to all who keep the covenant. I will be your God. You will be my people. David's like the Hubble. His praise adds nothing to the essence of God, but he proclaims God's glory. And, he, and the children of the covenant, whose chief end is that very glory seen, proclaimed, adored, and rejoiced in. That's what this is about. But it's also what the life outside the church is about. Living in company with the body. Those are the first two verses. Now we come to what I call the center of the psalm. Verse 3. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Now here's David. He's coming out of his personal private reflections. He's coming out of his experiences of God. And he summons the entire assembly of believers to join him in this activity of magnifying. This is the focus, not just of his church services, but of his whole life. He's proclaiming his God both to his people and with his people. You are not an audience. You are participants in this. When we come to worship, who's the audience? There is one. 
An audience of one, we worship God. We, that's, where the, that's where the audience is. We do this together. God belongs to all of us. All of us belong to God. I will be your God. You will be my people. The fundamental reality of the covenant is the gathered body of Christ, met for the magnification of his name. Look at David's reaction in another psalm when he is denied the ordinance of gathered worship. Before I do that, ask yourself this question. What makes me really, really sad? What makes me absolutely heartbroken? What profoundly depresses me? Here's David, who's as emotional as anybody. Here he is in a state of depression. Psalm 42, verses 1 through 3. As the deer pants for the flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before my God? This is a private prayer. He can't get to the temple. He can't get to the public ordinances. And because he cannot get here, my tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me all day long, where is your God? I have no access in this particular part of his life. I have no access to the public ordinances. I have no access to the temple. I have no access to gathered worship. This is David. This guy wrote about half the Psalter. You think he probably had a fairly effective devotional life? And yet, that fairly effective devotional life leaves him dry and thirsty and depressed in the absence of this. He can't live without this. Those of you watching on TV, that's not church. This is the gathered body. The absence of gathered worship has got David wrestling at the edge of despair. How does he comfort himself? How does he pull himself out of his hole? He does so with the hope of a return to the temple. Verse 11 of Psalm 42. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. Why? For I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. Now, can't he do that outside of the church? Sure, he can do that. But where does he ground his delight in God? He grounds it in the gathered ordinance of worship. The people of God come together to share the magnification, the proclamation of this glorious being. This desire for magnifying the Lord together shows up all over the Psalter. It's the highest priority in the life of a believer. Look at Psalm 27.4. One thing. One, how many things? One thing have I desired of the Lord. That shall I seek. That I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To behold the beauty of the Lord. And to inquire in His temple. How's that for a number one priority? This is not something that David has squeezed into his busy schedule when he has the time and it's convenient. This is that around which all of life is built. And everything else is made to sleep in around the sides. 
It's a revolutionary view of the place of God in life. Life is that which you cram in around God at the center. That's the priority structure here. So what's going on in gathered worship? Well, you could say that what David has done with the idea of gathered worship is he's turned it into his own personal, or is it a covenantal, observatory. His meeting with the people of God, that's the orbit of the Hubble Space Telescope. The place where he can gaze, astonished, into the incomprehensible depths of God's being. And he can share his astonishment with the rest of God's people. So let's look a little bit into the eyepiece of the HST. What do we see in the eyepiece? Well, first of all, we see narratives. David tells something of a story as he looks into the eyepiece of some specific galaxies that he sees in his own life. Verse 4, I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. This is having fled from Saul and having to deal with all that involved. Verse 6, this poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his trouble. In one part of his theological sky, David sees the galaxies of his own personal deliverances. Again, the psalm dates from the days when David was fleeing from Saul, in which God repeatedly delivered him out of the madness of the wicked king. Out of the worst experiences of his life, here's David finding matter for the worshiping of God and calling his people to join him. He's... When somebody who has the entire power of your nation behind him is putting his entire military budget into your personal demise and you find matter for worship in that, you're focused on You're getting it. He's finding material for the praise of God in being pursued by a psychopath. Optimism doesn't even begin to cover that. Now, he doesn't spend a whole lot of time on the narratives. He moves very quickly from the narratives to what I will call the indicatives. A list of truths, principles that he's learned from what he's been through. He's saying, different things are going to happen to you, but they're going to be the same kinds of things. Because the same God is behind them. General principles David applies for everybody else. This is what happened to me. Different things will happen to you. But they will be the same kind of thing. So here are the truths. The galaxies in this part of your theological sky. That will shape your life. As you live and worship before God. The first thing I'm going to dwell on. Is the blessings that he lists. That all the covenant community has access to. Verse 5. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces shall never be ashamed. What's going to happen is that you're going to be vindicated. Over and over again, what will happen in your life is God will hold you up before angels, demons, and men and say, this one is mine. 
Your friends will rejoice. Your enemies will scream. As God says, this one is mine. I will protect him. Verse 7, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Delivers. The word shows up over and over again. Why would it? What's David preaching out of? His own deliverance. That's the particular context that he's in. Verse 15, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. How much difference does it make to know that on the worst day of your life, when life is unraveling at a catastrophic rate, you know God sees, God hears, nothing gets by him. You know that infinite power and infinite intelligence are fully aware of everything that's happening in your life. And forces invisible and incomprehensible are in play for your deliverance and defense. That is a fundamental truth that David's proclaiming here as he magnifies the Lord his God. Verse 17, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. One of the most precious verses in the book of Exodus is at the end of Exodus chapter 1. Where we've had this narrative of how things have gone real way bad far south for the Israelites under Egyptian rule. Their children are being slaughtered. They've been enslaved. All kinds of horrible things are happening. And as Moses begins to move the narrative out of the problem into the solution, he says this about God. And God saw. And God heard. And God knew. How much does that matter? God saw. God heard. God knew. You're not alone. That's one of the reasons we have a covenant community. So you won't be alone. You don't have to hide. No, you don't have to wonder if you've been abandoned. God hears. God sees. God knows. So when you cry, God shows up. And actually, you find out he was there before you cried. The Lord is near to whom? The brokenhearted. The Lord saves the crushed in spirit. Anyone of you ever been in either one of those groups? The brokenhearted? The crushed in spirit? I can't tell you how many times I've been a member of one of those groups. How many times... I've walked into the office of my dear friend Brian Rhodes and got out of those groups. How many times I've walked into this sanctuary and got out of those groups because of the gathered worship, the fellowship of the body, the communion of saints in which our Hubble Space Telescope of Proclamation shows us those immense supragalactic truths in which the Lord our God dwells and from which He gives us life. We talk about afflictions. Verse 19, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Now that's not a medical guarantee. But the idea is this. The framework of your life, insofar as that framework rests in the character and promises of God, cannot be undone. God will see to it. We have that guarantee. 
After all, what's the worst thing that can happen to you? The best. You might die. I'm reminded of an event many, many years ago where I got food poisoning. I was very, very uncomfortable. And you know, you get in that position where you're so sick you're afraid you might die. And then you're so sick you're afraid you might not. What's the worst thing that can happen to you? The Lord delivers you out of them all. Verse 22, The Lord redeems the life of His servants. None of those who take refuge in Him will be condemned. Let's review that. What percentage of those who take refuge in Him will be condemned? Zero. None of those. There is therefore now how much condemnation? What's the condition? To dwell in Him. And this magnifying the Lord is the dwelling with Him, delighting in Him, enjoying Him. Again, that oppressive, tyrannical God imposing joy. What's the alternative? Well, in addition to the blessings on those who are in the covenant, who are under God's grace, David spends a little time talking about the curses on those who are not. David knows a little something about enemies. And if you read the Psalms, you'll notice that there are always enemies. Even Psalm 23, where's the table? In the presence of my enemies. I don't know, I don't want my enemies coming over for lunch. But that, the idea there is vindication. The idea that the people who have been laughing at God because of what they see in you, the people who have been ridiculing you because of your commitment to this God, they are put to shame. And you are vindicated. And they see you lifted up by omnipotent hands. they got to deal with that. They have to live with the reality that the one upon whom they poured scorn and blows and persecution has been raised up by God and displayed as this one is Verse 10 is interesting in this regard. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. What about young lions? Young lions are, well, resourceful. Now, they have considerable power. If I spent time around young lions, I believe I would become tender vittles. And yet, the young lions suffer hunger. Those who rely on their own devices, those who rely on their own strength and their own cunning and their own talents, they're left in want. But those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Somebody give me a passage from the New Testament that says almost exactly the same thing in almost the same words. Brian's grinning. He's got it. Matthew chapter 6. Come on, verse 33. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And what happens? And all these things will be added unto you. Same thing. What are you seeking? What is your life aimed at? What matters to you? 
What do you spend your time and your thought and your energy and your heart pursuing? The whole focus of this psalm is together in the gathered body we pursue this glorious God. Everything else takes care of itself. How about this? Verse 16, the, vo- the face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When I pronounce a benediction, what's the one I always use? Number six, which says, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. What if I said to you, the Lord turn his face away from you? The Lord look not upon you. The Lord care nothing for you. How's that for a benediction? That's what happens to the wicked. That's what happens to those who persecute you and attack you and grind you under. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, and they're forgotten. They're cut off. Verse 21 is quite a contrast. Remember what God said would happen to His people when they were afflicted? Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but what? The Lord will deliver them out of, his all, out of them all. But what does this say? Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. When are God's people condemned? Approximately never. Now, what happens in Scripture after you have the indicatives? After you have the statements, this is what is true. Generally speaking, what happens next is something like the word therefore. Now, what's the principle I've taught you about the word therefore? It doesn't appear here, but the idea does. And whenever you see the word therefore, you have to ask wherefore the therefore is therefore. Imperatives. Where does all this lead? So we look back in the eyepiece and we go to another part of our theological sky. David finds galaxies that call his people to various kinds of action. Truth is unto godliness. He tells us to do things. Verse 9, O fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. That's a variation on seek ye first. Now what does fear mean in this context? It does not mean servile, terrified, groveling in the presence of something you hate. It doesn't mean that in the least. It is the kind of fear that a boy feels when he knows that he has done something that has broken the heart of his father. The father he loves. The father he cherishes and respects and looks up to. He's not afraid of the whipping. He's afraid of the grief that he's caused to one he cherishes and who cherishes him. And in the fear of the Lord, you look to your own conduct, you look to your own thoughts, you look to your own heart, and you're asking yourself the question, what is here in me that brings grief to the three-personed lover of my soul? That's the fear of the Lord. Not this slavish, servile terror, but a loving desire not to hurt one who loves me. And what, do we, what does the psalm say about this person, the one who fears God this way? He has no lack. 
What do you need? You got it. Now, let's get one thing real, real clear. God's definition of our need and our our definition of our need might diverge. Who's got a better idea of what we really need? Quick look at the Lord's Prayer. I'm not here to expound the Lord's Prayer, but I I heard a a really wonderful explanation of what the Lord's Prayer is. Uh, A guy had been a Marine, and he'd heard his drill instructor say the following sage advice. You are in the United States Marine Corps. If the Marine Corps wants you to have an opinion, we will issue you one. In the Lord's Prayer, God is issuing us our needs. He's saying, if I want you to have needs, I'll issue you some needs. And that's what he's done. He issues us our needs. And he will meet those needs infallibly. And those needs are the real needs. And you'll find that that all the needs in the Lord's Prayer are to one degree or another about God. They center on him. Verse 12, what man is there who desires life and loves many days that he, may see, that he may see good? Let him do this. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Well, you can see why he's got to seek peace because he's spending large quantities of time in a room full of sinners. If you don't seek peace in a room like that, you am not going to find it. You're not going to find it accidentally. You have to work for it. You have to resolve things. You have to work through things. It's one of the tragicomical aspects of the body of Christ. That in this life at least, it consists 100% on 99.999, there is Jesus. 100% of sinners. Sinners who are working out their salvation with fear and trembling. There's going to be friction. We're commanded to pursue peace. And it's in the pursuit of that peace that we discover, again, the beauty of the character of God revealing itself, not just in front of our adoring gaze, but within our astonished heart. What does it mean to be the image of God? It means to reflect who God is in your character. And I think it is a delightful accident of analogy that the main part of the Hubble Space Telescope is a mirror. Because what I'm doing with it in this metaphor is making us see that we're mirrors in which the face of God is seen. In the public worship, in the gathered community, in the communion of saints, we polish each other's mirrors, we polish our own mirrors. And the proclamation becomes brighter. And the galaxies shine brighter. And God is more glorified. I end with reference to one of the famous, most famous pictures that the Hubble ever took. I, I simply forgot about this. I should have put this one in. But you all know what it is. It's the Hubble deep field image. You know about that. The deep field image occurred uh, very early in Hubble's career when they pointed the Hubble Space Telescope at what appeared to be an empty patch of sky about the size of your thumbnail held at arm's length. A very, very tiny piece of sky which was chosen for the fact that it looked like nothing was there. 
And they did something very expensive and risky. They focused the Hubble on that patch of sky for 11 days. Hubble time ain't cheap. They, put, they spent 11 days absorbing light from that apparently empty patch of sky. And then they developed the picture. And when they developed the picture, you all know what they found. Absurdities upon absurdities of galaxies. Not stars, galaxies. Ridiculous numbers of galaxies in this little bitty tiny patch of apparently uninhabited sky. Because that's how tightly packed this vast universe actually is. It was glorious. Absolutely glorious. And we were able to infer from that patch of sky that there are hundreds of trillions of galaxies just in the observable universe. And I'm not going to talk about what we can't see. It's vast. We are here dealing with the person that made that. That spoke that into being. So we're going into the Hubble deep field of Psalm 37. Sitting at the very center of this psalm is its own deep field image. The verse that presents us with the impossible vastness of the goodness of God. The verse that calls us to a full-hearted enjoyment of all that He is. Verse 8. Oh, taste. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. This is what worship is all about. This is why it's so glorious to have a life that's centered on worship at all times. God does not seek our worship because he is a celestial narcissist who needs to have his ego stroked all day, every day. That's not what that's about. He knows himself. He knows his own greatness exhaustively. He knows his own perfections. And he invites us to explore a depth and a beauty as rich or richer than anything in any of Hubble's pictures. He calls us to intimacy with the intimate. Wrap your mind around that. He's offering you the privilege of a face-to-face, heart-to-heart intimacy with the infinite. Do you not see the honor of that? He provided the incarnation the cross, the atonement, and the resurrection, all in order to give us, us, subdued rebels, conquered enemies, to give us the staggering gift of acceptance into his presence. Enjoy that gift. Share that gift. Go be a Hubble Lord our God, we thank you for giving us such a purpose for life. We thank you for so honoring us with your presence among us. When I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you take note of him? You have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him a little lower than the angels. For this, Lord God, we praise your name. Absorb all of our thoughts 
all of our desires. Take up our lives, Lord Jesus. In that name we pray. Amen.